0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you guys to open up to Acts 2. As Gavin talked about earlier, we're going to continue on in our series called The Normal Church. And when the Holy Spirit falls on a day called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was the third part of the Trinity that worked and partnered with Father and Son, hovered over the earth, over the darkness in Genesis 1, to create and sustain and make, was not just part of the making, but also the redeeming of the world. And the Holy Spirit didn't allow space to become part of the narrative between God and people. The Holy Spirit drew near and close. One of the parts of the Bible in the New Testament says that the very same Spirit, which was integral in the creation of the world, in the resurrection of Jesus like, takes up residence in us in this mystical, like, divine way. He, 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 he lives and moves into the neighborhood. And when the Holy Spirit falls in this chapter, I need us to take note that the Holy Spirit falls on everyone. Everyone. The Holy Spirit falls upon some just to, for the sake of conviction of sin, but the Holy Spirit especially falls upon the church. All types of people, all types of languages, all types of nations are gathered in Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost happens. He falls on fishermen, and doctors, and lawyers, and tax collectors, and humble people, and arrogant people, and immoral people, and and young people, and old people, slave and free. The Holy Spirit is not exclusive. He falls on all flesh is what Joel 2 would prophesy about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And at City Lights, as we talk about the normal church, this very much, as Gavin talked about earlier, is very much how we would like to see what church is, not from what other churches do or what we've grown up in church, but truly always go back to the scripture and ask the question God, what do you call normal in terms of church? What do you see as the normal response to the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual, but not only individuals, but groups of people, all flesh like this? What would be the adequate response? Uh, One of my friends recently came to me and so just desperately wanted to share this testimony. She's at the doctor's office. It's like 10 a.m. on Wednesday. And she says she hears this conversation next door that like just in the middle of a mundane, normal Wednesday with normal people just felt like the power of God. She said that in the in the room next door, there was this doctor who was speaking to this elderly woman and the elderly woman was dealing with some issue Um, with with her blood, with her circulation. And she overheard the doctor in the middle of a normal Monday and Wednesday say to her, the thing that's really cool is that God made your body. He created your body to work in circumstances like this, and he created your blood to replenish itself for exactly circumstances like this because God made your body so you have nothing to fear. And she said the power of God in such a normal way was so profoundly evident and eminent in that moment Normal, everyday Wednesday turned into Pentecost type of Wednesday, turned into the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead type of Wednesday, the same power that split the Red Sea in the Old Testament type of Wednesday, the same power that overcame David to throw the rock and the sling at Goliath between the eyes. That same power which resurrected Jesus from the dead met that doctor's office. And our our passion, like our, our fixation at this church is that The Holy Spirit wouldn't ever get stuck in a building, wouldn't ever get stuck in a Sunday, and that the Holy Spirit is actually already in some, across space and time, already in your Monday, already in your Tuesday, already in the car line on Wednesday, at the ballet class, at, at the doctor's office, at the after school program, at the classroom that you're about to step into, and our job is on Sunday morning to ask you this question, are you ready for Monday. Like that's the thing that I think needs to shake us and grip us as a normal church is not will the Holy Spirit go ahead of us and is the Holy Spirit still working and moving is the question is are we equipped and ready to see the kingdom of God extend right in front of us? We're so much less at this church or in all churches I believe as we read Acts 2 can only respond. We're less about the programs, less about the building, less about you know, the, the, the structures that we do and so much more hopefully what heaven sees as most important in the equation, about people. About people being ready for the kingdom of God to extend in every single given moment. So in Acts chapter 2, we have, in the beginning of the chapter, a conglomeration of All kinds of people. It says actually in Acts chapter 2, and I don't know how. Scripture's authoritative. I don't know if the Mayans and the Incans and the Spaniards and the Portuguese are there. But there's a a segment, of a a phrase in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 that says that all nations are gathered in Jerusalem on this day. This center of religion for the Jews, but also center of commerce in many ways as well. Many people are gathered, and the Holy Spirit falls on this crowd of people. And this crowd of people who were going about their normal everyday life, all of a sudden... Uh, come in contact with the Holy Spirit and begin to be able to, um, the church that is, speak in other tongues and languages. So much so that all of the people, the Portuguese let's say, or the, uh, let's say the Romans or the Greeks or whoever else was in that crowd and company of people could easily discern the language that was being spoken because the power of God had hit this group of people. And it says that, um, that through this language... If we read backwards into Genesis chapter 11, the, power, the Tower of Babel was a time period in, in early human uh, history when, when God kind of dismantled this tower that people had built all the way up to get to heaven um, on their own. And the Bible says that, that the people were scattered and separated by their languages. The curse of separation and miscommunication and disconnection was completely overturned in reverse in Acts chapter 2, so much so that the power of God eliminated the communication gaps between people. But even more significant than that is the fact that by the time that the sun set on that day, on the day of Pentecost, not only was the gap eliminated between people, but the gap was also eliminated between man and God. In the same fellowship that it says in Genesis 1, that Adam walked in the cool of the day with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So this group of 3,000 people by the end of the day could walk in uninterrupted intimacy with their father. And like birds would migrate in their due season, like, like bears would uh, hibernate in different times of the natural like, system, like this kind of instinctual pattern, these newfound people, normal people living their everyday life now encountering and engaging the Holy Spirit are drawn towards not only God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but drawn towards one another in this kind of family, in this kind of community in this radically generous, uh, radically hospitable, revolutionary, redeemed, and revived family. And this is what it says their life began to look like. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. There's this prayer that John 17, Jesus prays that his church would become one. And this is the, the number that we see so prevalent in this chapter. is not the thousands, but it's the oneness that is resounding in this chapter thematically. It's like they have one place to eat. They have one doctrine they agree upon. They have one God and narrative that they find awe and wonder in. They have oneness in the sense of their possessions and shared belongings. They sold their property and possessions to give... To one another and anyone that had need. It was said that that many of the people that were in Jerusalem were only there for a temporary stay, but because of what they encountered and because of the sense of oneness and belonging they felt in this place, that they would sell their things in other nations and other lands to make and take up residence in Jerusalem so that they could be one with the church that they had found there. It says, every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. The religious custom of the day for the Greeks or anyone else would have been maybe weekly that they would meet. But every day is a familial rhythm of life. Every day they would find oneness with one another in their homes and in the temple. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's my favorite part of church. Church ain't church if it ain't got food, right? Am I right? Right you got to have good food. There's a oneness of table, fellowship, where no one is excluded. Praising God, enjoying in favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. We all know that, that when we add people to our table, when we add people to our fellowship, when we add people to our club, our group, our clique, that it puts stresses and strains on the inside to reach out to the outside. But this, this compelling nature of God's love, this inclusion of all languages, this making separate and foreign into oneness, too, par- too powerful, too profound, too imminent for this, for this church to close its doors, to become, uh, to become elite or separate. The Holy Spirit falls on all flesh, and return separate people into family. Joel two would say that the sons would turn to fathers, and fathers would turn to sons, and that old men old men would dream dreams, and young men would prophesy. This is the familial language that we see in the Bible. God is a father who is restoring a family, and it would make sense that when the Holy Spirit would encounter people, that the residual impact of that would be family, making many into one. So the first the first woman I ever loved before Kyra was a blonde lady from Fort Wayne, Indiana, named Marsha Louise Wong. Over here in the middle is Marsha with her 80s perm and all of her glory. And to the far, your far right is Pat. Pat's a Euchre player. She will cut you down in Euchre. She went to the Catholic Church for years and years and years. I got a Micah Amen back here for Euchre. The first, first woman a, a man ever loves is his mom. The first woman that a man ever, ever learns to love and to serve and to try and protect is is his mother? Like you know, like women. You may not know this, but men, like when they're when they're small boys, they oftentimes dream that they're superheroes. You know, and it, maybe in their mind, they actually believe it so much that they think that they are. And a lot of times, the you know the the good guy superhero would overcome the bad guy. And but at the end of it, was not just about defeating the bad guy, but it was just saving the person that you want to save. And a lot of times, you would dream and think about, what if I just saved my mom? Like out of a burning building like that's like the epitome of awesomeness when it comes to moms ladies as you're dating you might have heard advice like this before like watch how your your boyfriend or your fiance treats his mom because in fact like the way that he's treating his mom is telling you how he's going to treat you like we we we, we love our mom moms equal safety I remember I used to go overseas like to Hong Kong when I used to travel and go visit my dad I'd bring my mom's sweatshirt put in a little plastic bag so it smelled like her And then at night, before I go to sleep, I. (laughs) Little pink sweatshirt with a world and finger painting on it. I think I made her for Mother's Day one day. We just want to do well by mom, you know? We don't want to fail mom. I saw YouTube the other day, and like the guys in the back of the cop car, he's not apologizing to the victim that he just assaulted. He's not saying sorry to the police officer. You know who he's saying sorry to. He's saying sorry to his mom. Mom, I'm sorry I messed up. I'll do better next time. Like. He says sorry to his mom, when you see a celebrity or an athlete, like, win a big award, like, what's the first thing they always say, like, mom, I did it, you know, like, I, I did something great, did you see me do it, like, this is all because you, you, you did this, like, Kevin Durant, when he won his MVP in 2012, it was a famous speech that he gave, it's like, mom, you're the real MVP, mom, you're the real one, on Mother's Day, you know, like, I remember like I used to make like 40-minute old cereal with like soggy milk and give it to my mom. Some of you guys are like, wait, 40 minutes is not good? Yeah, 40 minutes is probably overexpired, you know. 40-minute old eggs that I give to my mom. Or I bought her one time, I was so excited. I gave her a Mother's Day present a week early. You ever do that when you're a little kid? I gave her a week early a Jane Fonda VHS, because I just couldn't hang on to it anymore. I just wanted to give it to you, mom. Like, I love you, you know? We just want to do well by our moms. We wanna we wanna add blessing and benefit and strength to all of our family. And I think that's a natural impulse is to want to draw near to to family. Circumstantial evidence, like there's no greater evidence that God is a father than the fact that his presence causes family in that community. It causes this natural desire to not just want to teach and lead and instruct, but to serve and give and sacrificially love the family next to them. For these 3,000 people, total strangers, at the beginning of the day spoke totally different languages, are learning To not just move from foreignness to familiarity, but from moving familiarity to family, to knowing each other, to spending every day with one another. This is the heart of the Father. This is the nature of the Father. And it's not new. It's not new to the Trinity. Because on Jesus' heart and in Jesus' prayers from the very beginning, like when He closed up His ministry and He makes His final comments in what I taught on a few weeks ago, the great high priestly prayer, the kind of parting remarks, the last hope for His family you know, changes from ministry and healing and fish and bread and wine and walking on water, and it turns directly into just this common, everyday, ordinary stuff, which is the power of family, the prayer that they would be one, just as you and I are one. That there would be no line between them. There would be no division or race or social distinction. They would become one. The Separateness would absolve itself and turn itself into oneness. This is his prayer. And then he goes on, after the resurrection, when Peter uh, sees Jesus again, this great resurrection, restorative moment when he had just last time he had seen him betrayed him and I preached on that last week now he gets a chance to see him again and has this conversation with Jesus and we're in John chapter 21 verse 15 to see this one when they had finished eating they shared a meal Jesus said to Simon Peter he says hey hey Peter I know that nobody's perfect and I know that you betrayed me and I know that there is gaps and and friction and distance between us at times but I can see the bigger picture and I sense that you love me and I'm going to give you the privilege of asking you the question that you might respond to me. Do you love me? And Peter, in the first response, just as all the other two responses says, you know that I love you. But Jesus, maybe for full effect, maybe for uh, some sense of like almost deeper wisdom and counseling, asks Peter again so that he might dig a little bit deeper into his answer and count the cost maybe of what it would mean to say the words, I love you, Jesus. And so he asks him again, Simon Peter. I mean, he calls him by his full name. I used to have a friend that his mom, when she was really talking, she'd be like, Mark, James, Robert, Perez, the second. Like Simon Peter, you know, like he really gets after him and he says, do you love me more than these?" He says, you know, I love you. The third time. The third time Jesus asks, and Peter kind of gets his feelings hurt, like, what do you suspect in me that you need to ask me this three times? Simon Peter, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And then he he says to him the same way on all three times. He says, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to take care. I want you to take care of my family. I want to make sure that my family's okay. And if you love me, if there's a sense that, that, you look at me with endearment and affection and belonging and wanting to be with me, then one of the ways that that will will emerge and play itself out is that when I'm gone, you're gonna find not only dozens or 120 in an upper room, but thousands next to you. And when you look at them, I want you to see me and I want you to serve them the way you would serve me. I want you to take care of my family. When my parents split, (laughs) my, my dad, he pretty quickly moved to Hong Kong. So we were a 21-hour plane ride away and a couple thousand bucks that I wouldn't see him that much. And uh, he, um, he, he never intended, you know, to ever have a split between my, you know, my mom and him. And my mom never intended or first saw that. I mean, they, they had been just college sweethearts and loved each other so dearly. And, and, and the whole thing was just devastating, you know, for, for them and for my family. And I remember sitting down obviously the emotions are, are high, and it feels like the stakes are high, but sometimes in those moments of, of, of tragedy and mom, moments of, of chaos, there's almost this kind of profound, deeper clarity where the stuff that matters most matters most, and the other stuff kind of loses its importance and significance, and, and so we had this kind of like really important conversation that reminds me of this beach conversation when I'm only 10, but I still, you know, remember it, and he, he kind of like sat down with me. This is like at the airport, and he has this conversation, and he's like, I want you to understand something now that you might not ever understand or you might not understand until you're much older, but I'm gonna tell you now that you'll understand it later. He says, as I go, what's gonna become really important is that you take care of your mom. Because in this scenario, nobody hoped for this and nobody wished for this and nobody wanted this, but in this scenario, you guys are gonna need each other more than you'd ever known. And I'm not gonna be around to take care of her. And I wish that I was and I wish that it was different, but I can't do it. And, and he says, so I want you, and I don't want to put undue pressure on you, I don't want to make you grow up too fast, but I want you to make sure and tell me and look me in the eyes that you're going to take care of your mom. And every time that he'd pick up the phone, one of the first and the last things he would always ask me, even though there was bitterness, even though there was discord, even though there was disconnection, is like, are you going to take care of your mom? Are you going to take care of your mom? How's your, how's your mom doing? Is she healthy? Is she doing well? How's her work doing? She'd be at, he would ask me these questions. Even at a young age, I get this, get this sense that it was the right question to ask. Like, I already knew I wanted to take care of my mom. I already knew I wanted to bless her. I don't want to be ashamed of her. I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to take something away from her. I want to contribute and add strength to her life and not take it away. And this, I believe, is Jesus' heart when he extends to Peter. Like, if you love me, this is the thing. If you love Jesus, you have to, in, like, inclusively in that package comes this imperative to love his church as well. And this is, I believe, is what he's asking Peter. is like, I will be gone for a time. But, but the church, you see, it's my bride. That's what it's been prophesying all the way through Jeremiah and Revelation and the New Testament and Corinthians and Isaiah and Hosea is that the church isn't just sort of ambivalent relationship or somebody that's going to bring due sacrifice and due time. This is my family. My church is my family. The thousands that gather, not just the 120, but all nations, all flesh, all people, sons and daughters combined, are going to come together as one. And if you love me, Peter, you will love my church as well. This is my bride. The parents in the room, it's, it's a sleeping child that if you didn't hear from, you just go in and you watch their chest rise up and down. You're devotedly obsessed with caring for this kid and they don't even know it, and they're just breathing. It's when you you send your kid off to college, and they just can't get rid of you quick enough. And they just like, okay, Dad, I know. I'll put on deodorant and brush my teeth. Get out of here. Like, I'm ready to get out. And it's like you're driving away, and your heart's like left in the dorm room. Like, this is the nature of, like, this is the way that God thinks about his his family. Like, when you take your, your friend that you've grown up with and you never thought that they would end up sick and why are you okay and she's sick and you're taking her to the hospital and you want to know more than anything that she's okay. You even care, maybe even more than her that you care. This is the nature. He's not ambivalent. He is not neutral. And he doesn't love the church because what it does for him. He loves the church because it's his bride, because he sacrificed and died for it, because he, he, he called it to himself. This is the language that we hear in Acts chapter 2, Right? We'll read it it once more through this lens. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Teaching isn't just a classroom, it's a living room, a conversation for this new family to discuss things personally, not just objectively, but through the context of of scripture and doctrine. We have this family moment, awe and wonder, this adventure. What good is family if we don't have a few adventures, right? You know a family's a family when it's got stories when it sits around the table. If a family's functional, if it's not dysfunctional, it'll sit down and it has stories to tell. And this family, this church, they would have stories to tell. They would just be talking about theories and doctrine. They'd be talking about stuff that happened. Awe and wonder, it says, would fill the church and had everything in common. When me and Kyra first got married, people used to make fun of us. We had one car, one flip phone, uh, one email address, which we still have, and I will tell you, that's one of the best choices that we made because it caused us to be, to share life and share things together. Family shares, it shares stories, it shares intimacy, it shares belongings. It goes on car trips together. It says every day, they probably drove each other nuts. And that's absolutely what you see in the letters, right? They were at each other's throats half the time. They're talking about, you're a Jew and you're a Gentile and they're fighting over who you follow, Paulus Paul, blah, 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 blah. They're ha- having conflict. You know, families have conflict. This isn't like a a business meeting. They break bread. They add it to their number daily. They practice hospitality. And this is the profundity of this thing, right? The power that created the earth comes down not to form an army, to form a family. And changes the world. Not through like the barrel of a gun or some crazy, you know, political pundit or some speech. Through hosting meals. Changing the world. Through hospitality. What other kind of a God would do that other than a father? What other kind of a Holy Spirit would do that other than one that's sent by the Son, by the Father, to come and dwell deeply and richly inside of a community to make it not only foreign to familiar, but familiar into family. This is, this is God's church. This is his bride. My wife, Kyra, is uh, sitting here, and um, she went to a Mother's Day tea uh, last week with Alec. And this is just the... Boy, they are... People think that the world's getting worse. Not when you go to Mother's Day tea, man. This thing is just hard to not cry at. It was the... Sw- Sweetest thing, they made a, a like, little mom hat with the paper plate right there, the pink little paper plate and the little flower church hat. Kyra needs to wear church hats more. Now that I see this picture, I'm thinking, why does Kyra and I have a church hat on today? Or some of the other moms have church hats on today. The church hat, and, 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 and the necklace down here, it's a diamond necklace, but it's not D-I-A-M, it's D-I-M-E-O-N-D, diamond necklace, because you see what I, with the dime, and the, that's a diamond necklace. A lot of really sweet memories in this picture, a lot of visible things that show love and care and compassion. I just love the the expressions on the faces of baby Oliver and Alec, and I just feel like it just encapsulates. There's so many things, and I put this on Instagram yesterday because I was just overcome by the picture. There's so many things that are less visible, though, in this picture. Like, less visible is that, like, the tooth that's missing in Alec's mouth is, like, carefully stored somewhere in our house in, like, a little capsule, and it was, like, delicately. And all that, you know, that, you probably don't know this, but the at the kids' teeth have 20 baby teeth, and every single one of the baby teeth, that we, we, she's taken them and she's put in every single one, and then gave credit to the tooth fairy, every single one put money. And all the hair, my, my hair, and, and these kids' hairs, all the hair is like cut by Kyra. All the clothes, washed by Kyra. All the diapers, changed by Kyra. The night before, Kyra's like up in the middle of the night with the baby. Kyra, 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 Kyra. The vans, like she goes to consignment stores to make sure that she's paying like the best price for our family. And make sure there's no laces so that Alec can get his shoes. Kyra is thinking about Alec. She cares about her family. She takes care of her family. That, that baby Oliver has is, is got an outfit on, which is just awesome and beautiful and clean, but it's like on the dime, the nickel on the dime, by like going through consignment stores and, and curating through hand-me-downs from other, other moms. And, and this story is not revolutionary. This is all of our stories. These are the moms in our lives, right? the ones who take care of the kids, the ones that that care about the kids, the ones that think about the kids, the ones that that love and and cry over the kids and pray for the kids and disciple the kids. This is the spirit of of what a mom is. And I just show up and I just take the picture. And it's so much easier to frame a picture than to raise a family. So much easier to stage a kid than to raise a kid. And in the church, like, it's so much easier. Like, this is what I've realized in 10 years of ministry, to, like, set up a website and get a vision statement. You know what's hard? It's easy to preach a sermon, I promise. It's so hard to pastor people. Like, that's the thing that's that's lacking. I look at these pictures, it's like T.D. Jakes and Judah Smith and, like, all these guys that I grew up in, like, Francis Chan, oh, my gosh, he's great. Look at how he preaches. And I love it. You know what I think about now? Who set the lighting up on that thing? Like literally, this is what I think of. Who's rolling the cords at 6.30 in the morning? Who set up the pipe and drape in the back? Which elders are waking up at 6 in the morning to pour over the doctrine? This is, what, this is the way that I'm thinking. I'm thinking families, don't, families are just friends unless there's moms and dads. And so who are the moms and dads that take care of the church? It's so easy to criticize the church, you know? So easy to like find something wrong. The church isn't it's so, it's not creative enough, or the church is just so, it lacks leadership, it needs more management, it's, it's, it's disorganized. It's like, yeah, so are families. You know, it's easy to find a, 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 a teacher that can criticize your kid. You know, your kid's just so loud and so obnoxious. You know, it's easy to find that. You know what's really rare? Somebody that gets down on their level and equips them and teaches them and enriches their life. That's what's rare. That's what's rare. You know, I look at the math problem of this. So let's just say like, discipling relationship, you know, like somebody that really gets on your level and actually cares about you, not just like the number that you can add or the thing that you can do for the church or whatever, but cares about you. What do you think? You think you could care, like if you really put your heart and mind to it, just to like care, and, and that's the thing. We are each other's mothers and fathers. We are each other's brothers and sisters. I'm not just talking about Marsha Altmyer. I'm talking about you and me. This is what this conversation is about. You, you, how many people do you think you could care for at a time? Like really invest in like three people, five people, maybe. You guys are extroverts, maybe like seven people. It's like, let's say there's seven people. Maybe you see your sphere of influence, you could care for seven people. This is what I think of. 3,000 people come in, first glance, revival, this is the best thing ever. God is bringing in the nations. He's bringing in all these people, 3,000 people. And then you sit there and think about it and start doing the math problem. And you're thinking, but every seven one of those people is going to need a Peter, Paul, Timothy, and a Kyra to care for those people like have walked the walk for 30 years and haven't fallen to impurity and, and haven't fallen to despair and haven't fallen to gossip and haven't fallen to inerrant iner- to doctrine. I mean, that's rare now. We're not talking about just the average everyday person that could see the Holy Spirit was doing miracles. Somebody that's ready to take care of the family. This is the prayer I think that Jesus is like praying like, I hope that somebody's going to take care of these people. Because exalting Jesus is free, but equipping is so expensive. It takes 30 years. It takes me 30 hours to create a sermon. It takes 30 years to build a leader. Take, take a calculator and divide 3,000 people by seven. You know what you come up with? 428 Peter, Pauls, Martha's, and Mary's. Do we have 4, 428 Peter, Pauls, Martha's, and Mary's? And meanwhile, we're praying for the property and praying for Greenville and praying for the things that we want to see God do in this, in this city. You know what I think? He's praying for us. I hope you're ready to father and mother and care for the people in your community right now, less waiting for these other people. Because it's going to turn into a mess if you have three thousand people. Who's going to pay the taxes? Who's going to count the money? Who's going to be the elders? Who's going to like set up and tear down at four thirty in the morning? Who's going to set up for a Saturday night service and the Sunday morning service? He's not asking do you have the people. He's asking do you have the fathers and the mothers for the family? Is what I think he's asking. This is my bride. Will you sacrifice financially for my church? Will you? You know, it it costs money to like send your kids to school. The schools don't just get paid for, right? How much do you spend on your kids for vacation and, and TV and Netflix and phones? It's like it's the same thing with church. It's the same thing. Our our, our building, this building, and Camelot, or and the in the offices at One Eleven Mills, and the wonderful staff we here have here. Like, it takes it takes finances. Like, do you care for his bride? This is what I believe he's asking. Do you stand up for his bride? Like when somebody comes in and bashes the church, it's like, yeah, it's not. it doesn't take a PhD to bash the church. It's not hard. We're kind of cheesy and corny, a little bit awkward sometimes. Let's be honest, right? But the Holy Spirit doesn't come and notice any lack and use it for criticism. He only equips. He only takes responsibility. He only takes ownership. And he comes in and says, I know that you're not put together, but I've come to be an equipper, not a critic. I've come to equip you. I've come to get down with you and be your advocate and caretaker and love you. This is what I believe we're here for is, you know, if you don't know the use of something, you always abuse it. And and if we don't understand church as a family, if we think it's a business, like when we go to Applebee's and we're like, how come my water didn't get here yet? Like, if we really think about it from a consumeristic, we will always be critical. Always. There will always be something wrong. But it's because we looked at it the wrong way, we abused it. We misused it. We're not here for a business. We're here for, for family. We're here to care for his kids. We're here to nurture and raise up and bring up. He returns, and it says in the scriptures that he returns to a bride. And he wants the bride to be pure and spotless and blameless, which means if you look at us, there's some assembly required for this thing. Kids don't just come out raised. You've got to raise them, and churches need to be equipped. That's our value. These are the three values of our church, exalt, equip, extend. This is our value. We need equippers. We don't need critics. We need people that are going to spend time. Like it takes time to get connected and to see life and relation. It doesn't happen through emails. It happens through time. Freddie Biggers, the guy, one of my friends up here that sits up here in the front, oftentimes probably the most testosterone-laden person I've ever met. I mean, the manliest. I, it makes me feel like I need to go get a gun magazine or something. I don't. Like he, he makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. Sweetheart and a teddy, heart, teddy bear inside. And he loves his—he owns his one daughter, Gloria. I love that. Isn't it manly men that get daughters? It's just the funny the way the Lord works. He—he just works that way. He's got all the guns, in, he's got more guns than the, a, a small Al Qaeda regiment. <laughs> but, he—but <clears throat> he invests his time as his daughter, and the things that he loves doing, he did because his daughter loves doing them. He loves to roller skate. He bought horses for his daughter. This is the thing: is like we think discipleship is. Let me sit down and teach you, a oh, young man, about blah 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 the things of life. It's like no, just enjoy the people with you, enjoy your children. There's teaching moments, yes, but most of life is enjoying the people that you're with, that you come shoulder to shoulder, and you look at something together, and you and you yoke up and become one as you move forward into into life together. This is what relationship is. The more and more I think about discipleship and fellowship, you know what it is? It's just friendship. Just be somebody's friend. Equip the church by being a friend. Don't just be friendly. Don't just have a hospitable atmosphere. Like, be friends. Invest in relationship. Like, spend time stirring. The more I think about stirring, in, in, the more and more I get into to, to, to church and leadership and all this stuff. It's like, it's just, it's sharing stories. You know what happened? Like, it's the classic story. Like, in, in the runner's world is that somebody ran a four-minute mile, and then everybody got ruined. Like, it haunts competitive people like runners to know that somewhere out there is a four-minute mile. And so much so, I believe the love of God really chases somebody down when they start hearing the possibility of God's love in somebody else's life. Like when you share a story about your journey to forgive your mom, it does so much for the person that hears that story because testimony literally means like if he's done it once, he's gonna do it again. And what it does is it breaks the mold and it sets a new normal, a new four-minute mile for that person. So I just have increasingly just seen The best and most effective tool and resource in discipleship is your story. If I could tell you one thing about being ready for Monday to equip the person in front of you, share your story, know your story, share your story. Like, when you share your story, you're you're showing people. We're all shoppers, right? We go on Amazon, we click things, we put it in the basket. Maybe I'll buy that later kind of thing. That's what we do. We shop. And if we find something better, we put down the last thing we had, and we buy the thing that has more substantiated value. And when you share the, the gospel of God in your life, not just as a theory, but as a story, I promise you, it will, it will no one, nothing else can shine, shine a candle to the truth and the testimony of God's power and strength in your life. And so I think that a lot of times they're just sitting around and on water because they're sharing stories and they're talking and testifying to what God has done. Sending, are you a sender? Every kid, like Sandlot movie to like every cul-de-sac in America, kids, kids are in a process from eight until 18 just wondering if I have what it takes to get it done. And they look at things like diving boards that are 10 feet in the air and girls that they're supposed to cross the room and go ask out or whatever, and they're terrified, except for the adult who has the power and authority in their life and said, I can see you and I can see that thing and I know you can do that thing. That's what sending is. It's the ability to see beyond where that person's at and to see the potential, not just the problem in that person. And so the question is in prayer, will you take care of my church? Will you support it? Will you stir it? Will you send it? Will you help to see? Don't be like me. That's the thing is we make a mistake. It's like, I'm a disciples person so they can act and walk and talk. No, 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 no. No, we don't need another you. We need another Jesus. We need people to be like little Jesuses. And the journey of discipleship is not coming along and saying, hey, copy my stuff. It's saying, let me ask you questions to figure out what God is saying to you so you can go on walking walk in your future and destiny and be sent as the perfect part of the bride of Christ. Supporting, stirring, and sending. We need equippers in this church. And might I plug right now, probably the best place to get involved in terms of being in, other, in one another's lives, not in the hundreds, but in the, in the fives and the tens, is city group. We have 12 city groups that meet all throughout the city, all throughout the week. We would like to start new city groups if you're interested in opening your home or you feel like you're maybe not necessarily a polished-off leader, but you're available and you would like to go through that process. City groups are the – Chick-fil-A has chicken sandwiches. We want to have city groups. If we, we can fail at a lot of things. We cannot fail at city groups. We need to have communities of supporting, stirring, and sending. Disciples don't get made from sermons. They get made in life on life, every day, sharing belongings. Nobody had need, awe and wonder, sharing stories, getting in your life, sharing time, realizing the value and the destiny and the gifts that you have that nobody else has. That stuff doesn't happen here on Sunday. It happens in your home, the temple and the home, in the temple and the home, in the temple and the home. Is it important to you? Will you make time to make sure that you have people in your life? That you have, don't call it a city group, doesn't have to go on the website. Do you have people that have access to your life that you're sharing life with, not just sharing ideas or, or, or theology with? Do you share tears and hard times and good times and laughter and memories? And don't just talk about theology, have fun. Do things together, share life. Like go horseback riding, go roller skating. Like this is the, God has set us up to change the world, not through classrooms, through roller skating through hospitality, through normal, everyday life. God is looking in need, and in need, the Holy Spirit is looking for and cultivating leaders and equippers, not critics. People that don't just stage church and come up with cool slogans and ideas, but actually do the pastoral work. The mathematics is gruesome, if you think about it. 3,000, if you had 3,000, you had 428, that's bigger than this room. Are we ready to be parents, like spiritual caretakers that support stir and send for this world? Let me pray for us as we transition into worship. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your heart that never forgot about us, that always thinks about us, that's always thinking about our betterment. And even when we walk the opposite direction and try and confound our purposes, you put us back on the path. You're a bigger advocate for us than we are. And I get a sense, like something in me comes alive. It's dead until you come to me and and help me unveil and see the people that are in this room. I get so distracted, but when you, when you come into my peripheral and I see things the way that you see things, I get a taste, I get a picture, I get an understanding for, as, as Timothy preached on Jeremiah earlier, for the plans and purposes that I have in people. I get this picture of the, your heart for people and, and, the, and the power that's in people in everyday ordinary conversations of people to just make space and availability for Holy Spirit, what you want to do. I believe that Pentecost is not over. It's not done. It's continuing. Pentecost is today and tomorrow and the next day. Pentecost power, the power that raised Lazarus, the power that raised Jesus, the power that split the Red Sea is in us in common everyday normal moments like Sunday afternoon Mother's Day. We bless mothers in this room. We thank you for the mothers that are not in this room. We mourn the that those that, that long to have children and cannot have children and we honor and admonish the heart that you've put in mothers, all women, to care and nurture. And we thank you that... You have, you have not been in short supply of daughters and of sons and of people to care for. It says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so we don't limit our mothering and fathering to just be DNA mothering and fathering. We, 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 we think about it from the perspective of family and bride and church. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are covering and caring for your bride right now, not just to protect it, but to make it strong, to equip it, to make it resilient and generous and bold and hospitable and full of awe and wonder and not lacking in any type of zeal, but full of compassion for the lost and the lonely. I thank you that you are the only one that can equip this church and you are the only one that is ultimately equipping this church through your power, the resurrected Son in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.